Welcome to episode six of the Comms Coffee Club podcast. I'm your host and MD and founder of Comms Search and Selection, Max Forsyth, the executive search and recruitment agency for the in-house communications market covering the UK and US markets. Delighted to have on the podcast this week the brilliant Michael Osborne, um, who takes us through his comms journey um, at um, Durham University when he was on the student newspaper, uh, through to working agency side for Fishburne Hedges with some real blue chip clients across sectors uh, with the likes of JP Morgan, uh, through to uh, his time where he spent most of his in-house comms career uh, at the Magic Circle law firm Clifford Chance. And we cover everything uh, from what a great PR campaign looks like uh, right through to working with incredibly bright, but also sometimes quite challenging um, senior partners, managing partners uh, and lawyers at a Magic Circle law firm and what he thinks the future of communications holds, um, not just as an industry, but also with technology uh, and uh, the rise of AI. Um, So yeah, it's a really great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, And of course, if you do, um, please remember to like and subscribe on YouTube and follow the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And of course, uh, if you wish to, you can also join our Patreon, uh, which starts at £5 a month and gets you exclusive access um, to uh, additional content, events, uh, and also there'll be ad-free listening when adverts come along. So, yeah, without further ado, here we go. Hello, Michael Osborne. Welcome to the Comms Coffee Club podcast. Great to have you. Thank you for having me, Max. Great to be here. How did you get into communications? I think like a lot of people, it was probably a bit of an accident. Um, I, 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 from a sins, decided to study law. Um, but when I was at Durham University, um, in the middle of all of that, um, found myself doing a lot of promotion work for one of the big student societies. And, and suddenly I had a okay. five-figure budget to produce uh, brochures and posters so I did that and... for a year or two for joining student newspaper. And then... Um, parlaying into a bit of experience in advertising, a bit of work in desktop publishing, and redesigning um, a student law review that we all used to get. Great. um, At the end of my degree, I thought, oh, this was quite good fun. I've I've learned a lot, and maybe I'd like to work in advertising. Um, Unfortunately, I decided this just as 9-11 happened, and the entire advertising industry crashed, and there was no recruitment at all. the necessity being the mother of invention, I, I discovered this this little industry called PR, which I'd just never heard of before, um, and uh, discovered that there were a whole bunch of people out there advocating, arguing, debating yes, uh, for money. And frankly, that was something I was already doing for free. So I thought, well, this could be an interesting thing to explore as a job. Um, so that, that's really how it started. And then the first agency you went to, was there a particular focus or was it? anything and everything? It was a really small agency. Um, it was a very strange one, actually. They had started out in PR and grown into an events company. Um, and I would uh, I'd actually highly recommend uh, working in a small agency for, for uh, the reason that you, you, at a very young age, get an awful lot of responsibility. Mm. Um, in fact, mm. the, the management philosophy of, of some of my managers is what I would describe as benign neglect. Um, and in a strange way, <laughs> In a strange way, I feel like I, I probably learned the most <laughs> under under some of those people. Um, yes. Just to take that step back and, and throw out a sense of direction and say, well, you figure it out. Um, whereas most, you know, some of the other managers would be a bit more hands-on and would almost make you more risk-averse. So yes. uh, it's, a, it's a small agency where you, you're given a lot of client exposure early on. It's a great way to just accelerate your, your learning yes. by... Uh, Making a few low, low, hopefully low stakes mistakes. Um, yeah, yeah. Along the way. Yeah, yeah. And can you remember what one of the yeah, first campaigns was when you were training at the deep end and uh, it was sink or swim? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think probably, I think one two very briefly that, that stick out in the memory. One was working with a stock picker, and 
And one afternoon I was in the office and I saw this news breaking live uh, about Philip Green wanting to take over Marks and Spencer. Yes. Um, and, I, and I checked in with the stock. Market. We weren't conflicted and he had positions in retail and it was important for him to be seen as an expert on the market. Yes. So we, we got a comment out within probably half an hour or something. And that perspective on this story, which was so big, went right across the national and international business media and very quickly became sort of a, became a go-to um, a go-to commentator on, on, on the issue. We'd established ourselves at the start yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was just it, it was just keeping it going from there on. It was it was very low effort. Um, I think I learned a lot from that in terms of the importance of being quick uh, and being relevant and, a, and and seeing the difference between being better in an hour versus even half an hour. Yes. Um, the other thing that really struck me with one of my managers was we were working on a big piece of research for a professional services outsourcing advisor. And yes. I thought this could be a good economist story. He's a big fan of the economists and he's very, very cagey. And he said, you know, if you're going to approach the economists, well, first of all, don't. But second of all, if you insist, don't call them, just email them. This struck me as an odd approach. So um, okay. I sort of went off and ignored him and just called the economist. And long story short, by the end of a few conversations, I was swapping lunch tips with this regional editor of the economist. We were getting big feature pieces and I, I learned something about, about taking risks, I think. Yeah. Uh, the importance of taking calculated risks in what we do. I think if you're a little bit edgy, both in how we do what we do and also the stories we tell, and calibrate that right, we tend to have much, much greater impact. It was really, it was really old fashioned. You know, we had, we had, we had, um, I don't even remember the name, we had some prehistoric uh, media contact database. Um, yes. And I was I was just hitting the the business desks generically initially, and then very quickly yes. following up personally with the the retail editors and the business editors. Um, just yeah. hitting the phones really. Uh, it was a very old fashioned selling, um, and it'd be quite targeted. So yeah, a bit of yeah, 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 yeah. distribution, but also who are the really important people here? Who, yeah, who's, who's who's got an editor screaming at them? Cover this now. And, uh, and just making those contacts and those relationships. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, no, and and those sort of been the days when yeah, when um, sort of print newspapers still very much in its in its in its heyday. And uh, yeah, as soon as yeah, you know, as soon as the late afternoon approaches, and you know, kind of, like, and then it gets into the evening, and stuff starts getting a bit heated in the in the newsrooms, and uh, yeah, people start getting very tense over the next day's edition. Yeah. Yeah, the fact it was a couple of hours before the end of the working day was uh, was a uh, was, was meaningful. Then when there was just one real deadline for most of the papers. Yeah, nice, um, smashing. Yeah. yeah, and then from there um, you went on to Fishburne. Yeah, um, which was completely different. Um, and you know, I I, I I learned so much there about workplace culture um, and also just working with a totally different type of client. So um, I remember. In the first week of the job on, on on one of my financial services clients, this this message came in from the client, and I was used to this old school approach where message think something would come in, it would go to the manager, they would decide something, it would be delegated. It was all quite structured. Yes. And at, Fish, at Fishburne, it was just a, it was quite a different philosophy. Everyone knew why they were there. We had a very clear sense of purpose. People were trusted, and and you would bring someone would just see this, put their hand up, say. I think I can do this. I've got some time. How does that sound? Yes. Be a general voice, you know, of approval. They'd go off, they'd do it, they'd share it. Other people would pitch in and it would go back. It was it was a much less controlled structure, much more purpose and trust and culture driven okay. way of working. And yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we got it was really interesting to me to see, you know, three years into my office working career, it was really interesting to see how that unlocked people. Um it was it, it was an incredible place to be at the time. So it's such a great agency. Um, yes. But also the, the the other big change there was suddenly I was working with these huge entities, the UK government, JP Morgan, mm. PwC. Mm. Wow. Yes. It was a it was a it was a different different kettle of fish. And I find myself having to defend companies 
for the first time. You know, I mm. find journalists trying to dig up some dirt on a financial services client to, to put into a trade publication. I'd never had that problem before. Of course. Or yeah. uh, NGOs going after a client and trying to sort of trash them on environmental grounds. And mm. yeah, how, how do you deal with that in the press? But also, how do you deal with that? not just in the press, but alongside a government affairs program. So you're actually engaging with government, trying to solve the problem at the same time as dealing with the press and, and really learning about integrated communications. So, yes. And even, I mean, I assume even, even with private sector clients there, I think any agency you're always, you're close, but you're always slightly removed. Yeah. And I think if there's a crisis or you're trying to, you know, stop something coming out, you know, you're having to sort of relay your plan or your message through someone else. And that, yeah. that must have added an extra layer of, um, I guess, not just complexity, but probably a bit of stress as well to, so I, it, you know, making sure, yeah. I think you're absolutely right. And, and as often as not, you know, with the more sophisticated clients that's the point at which they would almost pull up the shutters and go well we'll just deal with this internally which is incredibly frustrating um, because with some other clients where they had less capacity I, I i was brought in to deal with this to you know to to to, to manage really difficult environmental reporters mm. um, like mr clover when he was back at the telegraph and these were reporters who, who believed in what they were doing. You know, they weren't going to take some tough PC. It was, they were tough negotiations. And I find I loved that. But the bigger clients just, just kept that in hearts. And I think it was at this point that I started to realize being sword and shield of an organization, being part of the discussion, a little bit closer to it, was something that I really wanted to do more of. And I yes. love my time at Fishburne Hedges for all the reasons I mentioned. Yes, but yeah. It created a natural segue almost to, to what I what I thought I needed to do next. Just Ben, yeah, went across to where you've spent you spent the vast majority of your career. So yeah, so how did you get the gig? Clifford Chance were they a client of yours or? Uh... No, no. I mean, I, I guess I guess I was uh, having 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 done law and, and 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 probably had enough of it at university it was calling me back in a strange way and I, i'd always had yes. friends friends in that world for uh, for that reason you know a lot of a lot of my fellow alumni were, were, were in it so I, i'd never i'd never really completely stepped away from law yes um, and it seemed it seemed like an interesting place to be and long story short i met um i met ann groves uh and anna ward who were leading the team at the time and Anne yes had, Anderson whenever it went down yes it's a vastly experienced communicator and I just thought this is a firm that has a you know a nice team and culture that I can learn a lot from and mm. really interesting issues just situated in such a uh influence in such a place of influence in the world of the city and finance that, that this could be fun so it was sort of interesting good people fun and and happily um, they felt the same way so um i started there and to my m massive surprise was over over 10 years um, as mm. the world kept changing yes and uh what was that like for you i guess yeah you know your first your first in-house gig if you like mm. huge huge law firm magic circle Big reputation, great reputation, but big. Did that, uh, did that wear on your shoulders at all when you first walked in the door? Or? I don't think I knew enough to be that worried. Um, and I'm kind of grateful for my insurance as I went in, to be honest. Because uh, yes. if, if I'd thought about it, I probably would have been a bit yes. more cautious. Um, and sometimes that's a good thing. What really surprised me going in was I sort of thought, well, I've only got one client now. This is going to be really simple compared to being an agency where you're juggling three or four clients. Um, yes. But I very quickly learned it's like one of those fractals. So as you go in, there's just more and more detail. So suddenly I was in-house, but I still had multiple clients um, and all the riches that was there. I was just, I was a level down into the relationships there and a level up in terms of being upstream, in terms of shaping ultimately what we put out and being part of those discussions where reputation is relevant. 
the, yes. latter, the latter more of the time, obviously. Yes. So, um, no, it was, it was, it was a real eye opener in terms of the detail. I don't, I don't think it's easy to grasp that shift if you haven't worked both on the agency side and in house. So I think, I think mm. it's, I'm, I'm always um, interested when I see people who have done both. Yes. There's, there's something else that can be understood there. Um, so, so I, th I think you learn a lot just about how organizations work. Um, but I also felt uh, like I was that sword and shield. I felt like I was you know, part of it. And that was a big sort of emotional shift, I think. And the third, yes. the, the third thing that was just fascinating about being in house was the shift in attitude of, of the press. Um, you know, I realized how hard I'd been having to work before to, to engage and build relationships when I was that, mm. that, that person on the side, sort of like yapping in the journalist here, going, you know, come over here and talk to me. Yes, um, yes. It felt, felt like a real shift to the, to the center almost. Mm. Yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, certainly Clifford Charter's status probably definitely helped with that. I, I would have thought too. <laughs> yeah, I, I was very one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's certainly one of those, you know, it's probably one of those law firms that, you know, sort of journalists go to first for comment or first for insight, I guess, if they want to do some some research or get a comment on something. Um, for those that haven't, um, who listen to this, who haven't worked in legal PR, legal communications, can you describe what that, what that typically looks like. I know it changes day to day, but yeah, just some of the foundations, some of the fundamentals. Sure. Um, well, it, I mean, it's, I think it's changed since I started. So, you know, whenever I, I first arrived at Clifford Chance, I think our ratio of coverage was about one-to-one -one between the legal press and broader business press. And yes. part of the reason I was brought in was to be more city and financial focused and, and really proof um, that that wider that wider business agenda, I and mean, by the time mm. I left, I think we were three to one or four to one ratio in favor of um, in favor of actual business centric press coverage, which was about issues. Yes. Um, I like to think I played a part in that, but but a big part a big part has just been the, the shift in how law firms behave uh, over time, mm. going from being very much a professional firm. To being very much a business, and, and there's always a balance there. Um, but you, you can yes. even you can even see it just in where law firms you know were based. You know, if you go back half a decade, a lot and, and many smaller ones still are would be based near the ends of court. Yes. Um, then in the late '80s, early '90s, suddenly you have Linklater's and Clifford Chance turning up at Barbican, so we're halfway to the city. Yes. And now you've, you've you've got the U.S. firms, Freshfields, Clifford Chance is moving back in. They're right on Bishop's Cape. They're right in the in the heart of the city. And I think that physical yes. location shift has represented a psychological shift. Mm -hmm. So increasingly, increasingly, um, you know, being in a public relations function, a communications function for a law firm is. Mm is like uh, is very like any business to business um, public relations function uh, partnerships create some different dynamics yes uh, in that you know you, you have uh, maybe six seven hundred owners with business walking around um yes. which which can create some uh, some some complications when you overlay that onto uh, onto the hierarchy of, of management but right we all work in a matrix structure to one degree or another. So what are yeah. we doing? You know, on a good day, we are getting the news out about what services we can offer and how that's going to change the lives of our clients. Uh, yes. in influential business press and all the other media we've mm. joined up. And, yes. and we're, we're, we're helping our people to remember why they're proud to be here and, and why other people should want to be here. Um, it's... Uh, in, in that sense, it, it, I hope is is like most other business business PR environments. Mm. Yeah, it, yeah, and it's an interesting point you make actually around the uh, yeah around that shift um, towards the yeah towards the business and the financial press and being closer to the city. You you, you only have to look at most 
City Firm's fee book and, you know, the amount that it's grown on the M&A and the deal side <laughs> and the transactions and, yeah, that, uh, yeah, there's probably, it's legal PR has probably got a lot more in common with investment banking PR than it ever used to, for example. I think that's absolutely right. And the other interesting parallel with investment banking is that perhaps 20 years ago, the UK-led firms had the top end of the market largely to themselves. Um, mm. That has shifted, you know, starting maybe four or five years after the credit crunch uh, and right up to the present day, we've seen a royal step change in the engagement of the US firms in the same way that the, the city saw step change in US presence after the big bang. Yes, it's almost... Uh... It's almost mirrored, almost like for like, if you look at the growth of the US stock markets and how, yeah, yes. and the from about 2011, 2012, 2013, taken off. And the, and, the rise, and, the, and the rise of private funds, actually, even more so than, uh, than the US stock markets. I mean, that's what's been driving it. But, but one way or another. Yes, yes the private credit piece is, uh, yeah, yeah, there are some very large firms now that are making Yeah, but one way or another. Cash. One way or another, they're yoked to to the incredible um, power of the United States economy, uh, which is still mm. you know, the, the dominant economy um, that we're exposed to. Um, and just as the UK firms in the in the eighties started to consolidate and go global, um, as their clients went global and as the mm. city went global, and they they mm. were part of that whole ecosystem of the city post Big Bang growing up, US firms are doing that. But from a commerce point of view, that means you're in a much more dynamic market, a much more competitive market, a much more interesting market. Whether yes. you're thinking, thinking about you know, raising the profile of your business and being more competitive or fighting for talent or, or even just as a professional, uh, thinking, well, what are my opportunities here? Like, what, what, what kind of jobs are out there? Like, in, in every respect, it's become much more dynamic, much more interesting. Yeah. And what was that like for you? From a PR and comms perspective, being to begin with probably more London focused, to so then having a much more global outlook, and particularly find, uh, yeah, suddenly working with the US media and US trade press on a more regular basis. What was that like? Well, I was very fortunate in that I had the opportunity to work in the US uh, on a couple of occasions for for, for short stints, just to, to help out when the team was was uh, stretched. So I got to see the the office there and the media firsthand, and um, and it's different. Um, you know, there is a there's a real different culture in in reporting. There's a real different culture in how you engage. Um, I, I think I think the UK. And I don't mean this pejoratively. I think the UK business reporting is a bit more tabloid. It's a bit more opinionated. Um, that's something that US journalists can be a, a little bit a little bit. Um, unimpressed by shall we say okay, uh, okay. So, 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 so i think for me the main thing about being out there in the us and working with people there was recognizing the very different cultures and, and the need to engage with those two different those, those two cultures differently mm. um that was was later much that was later really helpful for me when i started working more with the teams in france and germany and in Asia, whether that was thinking about uh, an international project to promote the latest big thing we were talking about, whether it was Brexit or whatever, uh, yeah. to to, um, to managing issues, just just recognizing and really understanding, it, not just cerebrally, but really viscerally understanding that how different markets can be, even when they speak the same language. I think mm. it helps you to to operate across borders in a way that's much more culturally sensitive to both colleagues. And also the the media that you're targeting ultimately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have a good uh, and do you have a good example of uh, yeah of maybe one yeah one piece or one campaign where yeah it markedly different across territories and yeah I guess now you landed it. <laughs> oh gosh, I know you're asking. We're thinking back quite a long way here. Um, I mean, I think. I think for me, the key insight um, in terms of whether it's running a program or, or mm. over time or a particular project is 
is that in order to engage all these sort of different cultures and, and, and people and angles, you need a bit of time, people need a bit of heads up. And it is all too easy and completely understandable why a lot of the time, you know, in the mothership office will we'll work on something and it'll get pushed back and it'll get pushed back and it'll get pushed back and then suddenly it's Thursday and the story's got an embargo for Monday and you're sending out mm. translation and yes. um, pitching and everything else at the last minute. And, and we, I, I totally understand why these things happen. But, you know, because all of these markets are different, and not just in language, but also sort of culture and approach and where that, what stage they're at in terms of their media relationships and their, yes. their capacity to deliver, that that time up front to, to share, like, what is the big goal here? What is the opportunity? Mm. Where are we going with this? Giving people the time to feedback so that they feel bought in and they understand it and they can line up their partners. They can line up the media contacts and make sure that they're warm. So yes. that when they hopefully have a good amount of time to translate it and take it out, mm. because of that engagement and contribution, they feel a sense of ownership. Because when people own something, they're much more likely to, 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 to sell it um, when it's yes. getting the news out. So, yeah, yeah. so I, I think I think that's that's a sort of key insight for me. And, and you know. I saw that in what we did with the, the the launch and promotion of our tech group at Clifford Chance. I've seen it in, in something as simple as announcing, you know, the the annual new partners. Um, yes, uh, that, a, that a firm will promote. Um, you know, one year to another, where we went from um, perhaps less warning and less upfront consultation to. More warning, more, more consultation. We saw a bump in in coverage of about twenty five percent. Yes, and that's a really simple piece of work. So if that's the delta on yes. on something as simple as that. How much more would it be where you need to have an expert who's bought in and feels that they want to sell it, and the PR capacity is actually there, and the PR contacts in whichever channels are warmed up. Yes, um, whether you're talking about media, whether you're talking about engaging the local CBI. Yes, yeah, yeah, and media relations. I think actually, yeah, kind of leads on quite nicely here. Um, we're in an increasingly digital age. We're doing this on a streamyard. It's virtual. Works well. Works great. Um, media relations wise, how how has that changed and Guess where do you think um, where do you think that's going? I guess sort of both for the UK but also internationally. Yeah, is it is it still a case of you know going back old school and you know still meeting a journalist for lunch or for a coffee and you know building relationships that way, or is it engagement through other channels, whether that's you know Twitter or LinkedIn or its media databases? Um, no, good question. I, mean, I think it's really easy to romanticize what we were doing 20 years ago and imagine that we were all spending all of our time, like, you know, networking with reporters and hanging out in El Vino and, and, and you know. Yes, and six points later at the car, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> or do, do, doing, this, doing the 7 p.m. run to Mount Pleasant with the, you know, those press releases that you folded up into letters and you're yeah, begging, yeah. Begging, the, begging the guy at the door to chuck them into the machine even though you'd missed the deadline. Yeah, um, yeah, but even whenever I started out, like we were, there was a lot of spam in in PR. There were a lot of people just, just sending things out that famously went into straight into the bin. Like, you know, the fax machine you typically oh, see yeah, 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 in, yeah. in a newspaper yeah. office above the bin, and occasionally someone might rip something off and go, "Oh, this is interesting." So, yeah. um, it's easy to overstate the extent to which we were actually really good at being relationship centered 20 years ago and, and when i was at fishburn i remember when we did when we did uh, media parties and things it was always about 10 percent of the people that brought in 90 percent of the journalists so so i don't think that's new um but the lesson that i've taken from it over time is that it, it's about it's about stories and it's about the right mm. 
groups and mm-hmm. we, we spammed people in various ways we broadcasted sorry various ways 20 years yeah. ago and we'll yeah, continue yeah. to broadcast now using this incredible mix yeah. of media that we have um you know whether it is uh, paid media to, to target people that you don't have any natural exposure to and that includes social mm-hmm. as well as other digital channels or the earned stuff which can be anything from uh the traditional media relations to targeting content to contacts of mm-hmm. your targets who will then like and share and then that creates third-party endorsements you can do some quite mm-hmm. interesting digital strategies to your your own cohort and their social channels to your your mm-hmm. own channels internally so i mean it's it should all come together and you know if you're really clear about what the objective is here in terms mm-hmm. of what are, what is the pain or loss for people? Mm-hmm. What is the story that's going to trigger them emotionally to engage with you or do something yes. or, or share it? And then you just think, okay, well, where are they at? How do I get to them? And just, mm. just go for it. Those principles are, are they're endless. Um, yeah, yeah. They're, they're never going to change. At the end of the day, here you've got a person who wants to achieve something and here yeah. you've got a person who wants to achieve something. And it's about connecting the two of them with stories and media. Yes. And then eventually you'll find out which medium each person prefers. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. I mean, the, the, best, yeah. work I've, the best, work, yeah. best work I've done has always been integrated. I remember working with um, one of our tax partners at Clifford Chance on a, on a project where the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn had decided to tax uh, all um, tax massively the, these overseas investments into the UK. Um, that which, problem. well, you know, you're targeting offshore investors. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's very, it's very appealing. I, I totally get it. Unfortunately, yeah. um, it was probably also illegal because of bilateral investment treaties, and, and there was a lot to be done around that. And yes, and um, you know, I, I was working with a partner on that, and we we thought about who the investors were, where they were. We thought about what the issues were here, and we, you know, we. We crafted a story, but we didn't, we didn't just take it to the press. We took it to we took it to press. Absolutely, we took it to a client who's being attacked, and we double teamed yes. with the client on the today programming in real time, going up before them and build that relationship that way. Um, we wow, great we, idea. We, we guest starred with with all of the analysts in the city who were briefing the investors all around the world. So we, we went into the, the bulge bracket banks. Which yeah. you know, is very strong third-party endorsement if you're trying to reach investors to explain something, um, and we did the media stuff and, and created a, a sort of wall of noise, um, which resulted in uh, what the highlights. Say, you know, at one point the FT was asking us for an article, which doesn't happen very often. I mean, that's that's definitely a moment for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, right. You know, the the points we were putting across were being used on the front benches of Parliament and also at the Labour Party conference. Um, clients were coming directly to us, you know, bypassing all of the usual procurement gateways, looking for support, um, uh, new clients, I stress. Mm-hmm. And, um, and at the end of the day, the, the policy went away. The policy became unsustainable. Um, I'm not pretending that we were the only part in that. Mm-hmm. We were definitely part of that discussion. But that wouldn't have worked if we'd just gone for a few media heads. Yeah, that a few media hits. Send a press release out. Maybe try and get a bit of trade press coverage. Yeah, you've got to think. Yeah, who the end audience is, uh, or yeah, kind of who the target audience is. What do they look at? What do they read? Where are they? And yeah. then hitting every single possible point on that journey. Um, yeah, and also yeah, you know yeah, and thinking outside the box as well, because I'm I'm sure there'll be elements of what you did there that you would never have been shown something like that agency side or you were very unlikely to have necessarily been trained in doing some of those things, right? You've got to think outside the box and thought a bit differently. And... A little bit. I mean, I will say I was very lucky in the Fishburne Hedges was was ahead of the game when it came to integrated joined up thinking. Some of yes. the teams I sat on had a public affairs guy and an internal comm specialist and a, and a media relations hack like myself each team was constructed or, or a digital communications expert or a report writer whatever got it each got team it. was completely yes. so I, I 
I had never seen anything quite like this, but but the, the, the basic principles were there. Uh, Elon Musk, I think, has a point here. There are many points he has that I don't agree with, but um, but you know, he talks about first principles thinking. It's like take it right back to okay, you know, I'm going to build this rocket. What are the materials? What do they cost? How can we put it together? Yes, um, and in a similar way, if you come back to um, what because you're starting in what I do in professional services with an asymmetry of expertise, you, you figure it out, someone out there is going to win or lose. What are they going to win or lose? Mm. You know, that's usually a simple story, which gives you a good start for a story. And then it's a case of, okay, well, who are these people and what are their watering holes? Where do they sit? And then it's okay, and how do we get to those watering holes? Yeah. Uh, whether that is a trade body or the analysts or the media they read, it could be anything. Be anything, and yeah. it is that first principles thinking that will unlock that. Like most of the time, most of the time, doing what you normally do is the best thing to do. But like you don't want to be doing this every time. But for for the big bets, yes, the really interesting yeah. ones, first yeah, principles nice. thinking, definitely. Yeah, go. yeah, really great example actually. And um, yeah, I think a lot of people will take, uh, yeah, will take will take note of that and probably try and copy you. Well, I mean, <laughs> you're a thought leader, Michael. That's Maybe. it, you're a thought leader. Yeah. I, mean, I, I just say I've been very lucky to work with people who are that smart. I mean, I, I feel yeah. hugely privileged to have been able to, 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 to be in a job where I get to, to talk about a vast range of things with people who are much, much cleverer than me. Um, yes. You know, from a platform that, that people want to listen to. Um, yeah, yeah. And being able to, to shift those public discussions and debates, whether it's that or my first two years at Clifford Chance was explaining the credit crunch to the world um, and what all the G20 summits meant. Um, yes. And um, I, I, I feel incredibly lucky to have done that. So mm. I'm very much standing on the shoulders of giants here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was the, um, uh, yeah, probably a, yeah, a question I want to ask, because uh, normally I ask everyone who was there who's their favorite ceo or their favorite partner they've worked for but actually i'm 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 going to change the question a little bit here because i think because i think what you just said around working very bright people clearly the caliber of lawyers and partners at clifford chance you know they're incredibly bright what was that like acting as pr counsel to lawyers whose job it is to Council clients <laughs> on legal issues. Yeah, yeah. Was was that a bit of a sparring match? Sometimes is that? You know, yeah. Um, it was one of the things that it was. It was brilliant and terrifying. Um, it was brilliant because you you had these 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 minds that, um, that you work with, these people that, that 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 could just help to unlock discussions and debates and, and help to make sense of the world. Um, through our third-party endorsement, just help to to make everything clearer. Um, however, it is also a building full of critical thinkers, and so you very often get the question, "Why?" And um, you know that doesn't always happen with you know with my in my previous role where I'd been working with marketing departments who who kind of got it and just wanted to get on with it more of the yes. time. But that was interesting because I suddenly had to go in even more prepared than usual. And I think it's a good discipline to think about what you do and to be able to explain it to someone who doesn't do it all the time mm. because it, it makes you understand what you're doing a bit better. So I'm really grateful actually for all of the all of the questions I got over the years. And it, it, I remember about, certainly my first year, I remember some of the questions being quite frustrating, but looking back, I learned so much from partly the questions being asked and also when you're dealing with really senior people who've been at the top of the business for 20 years, they know a lot about how things will play out. So they, they might not be an immediate expert, but if you're dealing with an issue, they know how these things play out. And by listening to those challenges and engaging with them and uh, being prepared to give and take on both sides, this is important. Yes. You could end up with a much better product. So it was terrifying. But it made me learn a lot, and I'm really grateful. Yeah. yeah, and what was it like? Um, you know, tell me if I'm wrong here, but I'd say m m most lawyers tend to be slightly more risk averse than risk takers. <laughs> this is true. 
PR people, on the other hand, particularly with agency training, you've just got to get out there, just got to do it. Um, what was that like convincing more risk averse people to, to take a chance and trust you? Well, it's two things. So I think initially, when you when you get in there and, and you're starting to to work on something, and, and I was coming in at quite an early stage to try and do this finance and city journalism relations that yes. the firm hadn't really been doing before. But you start with people who are intrinsically motivated, so they're perhaps a little bit less risk averse, and you start yes. to build up their profile. Um, and then once you've created that momentum, you know there's always a little bit of green-eyed jealousy going like, why 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 are they getting all this exposure and yeah, 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 yeah. to take the next tier down and now that they've got that intrinsic motivation um you go okay so like i know where you're coming from we don't want to create any unnecessary risk because the downside is huge um yeah, yeah but it's a case of 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 starting small i always think um we've learned so much over the last 20 years from behavioral science about what works and what doesn't work in terms of everything from making a story to, to driving behavior change. Uh, my favorite way of talking about this with, with people is very often to refer to Duolingo and how it gamifies learning language. You know, how does how does Duolingo get you to do something that's, mm. that's a bit mm. scary and intimidating? Because like, trying to speak another language is scary and intimidating. And what does it do? Yeah. It makes it easy. Um, it makes it a bit fun. Um, and it kind of nags you and it kind of and it celebrates so your cycle yes. is a little nag to do something you know it's going to be easy so you're much more likely to do it yeah you, do yeah. It, you feel good about it because you that thing that you're yeah, given yeah. was to the right level for you so you feel good already you then get praised for mm. it's really better um and then you get you know a nice result and that gets shared more widely and suddenly there's a you know you're looking good in a, in a pure context and then you're back to the mm. next stage Mm. That's the sort of Duolingo cycle. And then that's the same cycle of taking someone from curious but risk averse to actually really natural and confident and they get it. I remember yes. I remember with one of the um, regulatory lawyers who wasn't a partner at the time. One of the regulatory lawyers said, Clip chance, he, he wanted to start raising his profile. And we sat down and he talked about this this exciting new regulatory initiative. But it didn't sound very exciting. As we workshopped it a little bit, and, and I was explaining to him, you know, you don't need to change anything here. This is all great. But let's just give them some language. Journalists love language. Let's just give them some language that they can, when they hear it, they'll, they'll light up. Something that's visual, sort of stimulate the senses, even though they're words. Yeah. So we used, it, was, it was a cliche, but, you know, I just said, okay, so the European Union is firing the starting gun on um yeah. and he took that on board and he and he took a couple of other points um, away from it and next week um front page story in uh ftfm uh, as was then at the time and uh that was the pull quote picture of him pull quote of this you know this huge new regulatory thing coming out it's going to unlock loads of capital to you know, to yeah. drive, drive lending to businesses those banks were treated post post credit crunch yes um, it, it, there's little wins like that. They just create those, those, uh, those cycles. Um, yeah, and and, and almost writing the journalist headline for them as well. Oh. You know, kind of, yeah, you know, sort of saves them a job. And uh, well, it, yeah, it, it sort of comes back to you know, what, what what is a story, and uh, you've got to yeah, what's the hook? Yeah, I mean, there's always layers, but there's got to be a simple layer, and that simple because come back to behavioral science again, you know. We know people don't want to think. And what, what I mean by that is Daniel Kahneman, system one, system two, the system, system, you know, the, the complicated thinking, the system two stuff, like 732 times 450. Now, if I give the option of two marshmallows and that sum or one marshmallow, most people will take the one marshmallow. They don't want to do it. So give them a simple story. And we also know about priming people. If you buy a new car, you buy a, I don't know, a rent a mini, say, suddenly you'll notice yes. all the minis because you've been primed. Yeah. So, so you've got to think about okay, people are trying to reach, what are they already primed about? 
and sort of shape the story towards that priming. Um, And then you've got to make it emotive um, because if you're not reading it and feeling something, you're not processing it. If you're not processing it, then someone like that is not going to process it. So the, the emotion is critical. Like, there was a, a famous case study of a guy who he had a brain injury that separated the emotional processing from the, the, the rational processing yes. of the brain. People thought, will he become a genius? Will he become a sort of savant, a sort of data type figure from Star Trek? Mm. Not what happened. He just couldn't make any decisions. And so very often in, in what we do, because we're dealing with such clever people, yes, um, they want to be clever about it. And and sometimes... Our sometimes you just need to do the simple thing, right? It's, yeah. Yeah, it's, not, it's not dumbing it down, but you're okay, but why would someone care? Like, what's the win or the loss here? And getting that emotion there, that's what's going to nudge them into reading it or sharing it or giving you a call or instructing you. Yeah, just trying not to overthink it sometimes is, uh, yeah. You get back to the like, simple, salient, and emotive. You've usually got a story that will work. And yeah. work in the media, in direct channels, in pitches. You know, it's it's about connecting one brain to another, like we were saying earlier. And, and, and stories, stories are the most powerful way of doing that. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, normally, my final question is, if there was one thing about communications, what would you change? Again, I'm going to change it for you, Michael, because um, I know you love your technology and you've got an interest in it. Uh, if you had to choose one thing or one way, how do you think technology is going to transform communications over the next few years? Well, I want to talk about two things, but I'll respect the yeah, question. Yeah, no, 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 go on, go on, go on, okay. two things, let's go, yeah. Okay, headline, headline point. For me, I think there's this two really interesting shifts happening in technology. One is AI, and one is the ability to work remotely and, and do what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think they both affect how we work and, and how we deliver um, and what we do. So with AI, like, Already, I've used AI to to generate like extensive communications packs, and, and we'll be able to use it to capture tone of voice and do all kinds of clever things. So, I think AI in the short term will be a huge amplifier. In the long term, I, I struggle I struggle to imagine. I think anyone who tells you they know what AI is going to be doing for us in five years or ten years, uh, mm-hmm. but Bill Gates said it that we usually overestimate what will happen in two years and underestimate in ten years. I think that's what's going to be like here next couple of years we'll be amplifying what we do 10 years who knows but but that's something we're going to have to sit on all the time to make sure we are making most of it and we're keeping pace in terms of how we work in terms of how we, in terms of how we deliver suddenly we have a new channel like all of our stories to date have been pretty static yeah it might be a video but it's still static suddenly we can deliver a story through a bot maybe yeah um, that's internal communications or external communications um, that information, if we can stop it from hallucinating, that information can be contextual right down to the individual and interactive about what they care about right now. So that point yes. I was earlier about you know, three elements of story, simple, salient, and measure. What's salient changes from day to day. And if you're, if you're delivering story through some kind of bot, mm-hmm. that, figure that out and walk right into it with, a, with the best possible pitch. I think that's really interesting. Um, and on the, t- on the t- Tech transition and, and workplace front, you know, it's as a as a, as a team leader, it's like how do we preserve mm. culture here? But as a comms guy, I'm also thinking, okay, well, how do we preserve the culture of a larger organization? If we're spending mm. less time together. The importance of having a really clear sense of like, mission or purpose in our organization. Yes, and what the strategy is for pursuing that, and what what my individual role is in that much more important there's a huge opportunity for us working with leaders to really try to mm. make sure we've got clarity on that make sure it's simple enough to live in people's heads and not in a desk drawer somewhere if anyone has desk drawers anymore but you know what i mean yeah no i do yeah. because without that sense of a bigger story all these scattered people will 
be more likely to pull apart. This is what Harari talks about in Sapiens. You know, you you grow beyond 150 people by having these institutions and these bigger stories of nation states or kingdoms. And companies are the same. And, And I think there's a really important role for us to be asking, do we have a good story beyond mm. we want to be a really good business at what we do that will bring people together even though they're maybe not seeing each other um more than once or twice a month but it's been absolutely wonderful having you on michael um yeah and just before we go is there is there anything you'd like to plug is there any yeah like any sort of upcoming events you're going to or speaking things or oh gosh you'd like to, uh, now you're asking um, yeah like anything you'd like to mention no, I mean, I, I, I'm definitely, I've been away over the summer um, in, in France. I've been very fortunate just to have some time out and I've been um, reconnecting with people a lot. But um, since I got back, so next week I'm, I'm heading to a, a thought leadership conference um, just to, to brush up really because I mean, I've been working on this stuff for years. But I think however long we've been around, like, it's really important for us all to be continuously learning. Um, whether that is you know, at a conference like that or, or, yeah. or as I was talking about earlier from, from your internal clients, from lawyers, yeah. to learn stuff about communication there or wherever. So um, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really focused on um, brushing up my, my skills as things like AI grow and yeah. things like um, these, these tech transition and different ways of working come in as, as, as the ESG transition. It's yeah, going to be yeah. so many things for us to learn, and which you get yeah. the things that makes makes doing this job so interesting. Yeah, great, yeah, sounds fun, and um, yeah, the thought leadership thing next week I'm sure will be really exciting. So, hope so. Enjoy. Well, I would like to see you there. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> anyway, super. Look, it's been absolutely lovely having you on. Yeah, and thank you very much, Michael. Um, yeah, I'll obviously tag you in all the promo for this too. So. Um, yeah um looking forward to yeah kind of hearing people's comments and thoughts and yeah i'm sure i'll see you soon look forward to continuing the conversation max thank you for having me smashing no worries cheers michael thanks Bye. bye